Amen. I sure remember when that song came out. And I can remember driving down West Sunshine in Springfield, Missouri, and and, uh, singing that song to myself when I'd passed by a little place called the Lakeshore Inn, the beer joint, and uh, I'd start singing to myself, thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We are nearing the end of our journey in our study of Revelation. Revelation chapter number 21. This chapter and the next both look beyond the millennial reign of Christ, off into eternity. And after the long and long description of the awful tribulation events, now our attention is turned to the glories that await God's children. Now, there are five things in this chapter that I want you to look at. As it begins the chapter, he speaks about new things, verses 1 through 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. Notice in these new things, three things of which He speaks. Look at verse 1 again. And here we see there will be a new heaven. Now remember, there are three heavens. There is the atmospheric heaven. This is the uh, the domain of Satan. Remember, the Bible speaks about Satan being the prince of the power of the air. That is the atmosphere round about us. Then there is the planetary heaven. That's where the sun and the moon and the stars are located. And then the third heaven, and, and that's where God dwells. That's where Paul had a visit, by the way. And without a doubt, this is a reference here to the first and to the second heavens. And when I think about that, the atmospheric heaven around us is made up of nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen, and and all of those are extremely flammable. And you stop and think about it, we are actually living inside a bomb. I mean, if everything was adjusted just right, uh, it could explode. I, I read a brief article this week about uh, how a nuclear warfare would affect the the whole world. And, and it, it was talking about over in the part of Pakistan and India, just in that area there. If it just happened there, and were there only a few nuclear weapons deployed how it would affect the entire earth, the weather and uh, the seasons and 
and a lot of things. And I know you can't believe everything you read and all of these scientists that get together in their think tanks and try to program all of that and come up with, you know, a clear explanation of what would result. You can't depend on all of that. But the fact of the matter is, it wouldn't take a whole lot to set things off. But when God gets ready to set it off, it's not going to take anything by way of mankind because God has the fuse in His hand. And one of these days, God God is going to get rid of the present heaven and the present earth. So He says there will be a new heaven. Verse number 1 also, there will be a new earth. Turn back to Second Peter just for a moment, chapter number 3. Second Peter chapter number 3. And let's begin reading in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. So we're not just, you know, taking a shot in the dark, guessing about this. God tells us very clearly what is going to happen. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. And and by the way, that doesn't mean that the present earth is going to be totally annihilated. It's going to be actually, I think for a better word, it's going to be renovated. It's going to be changed. It's going to be transformed. It'll be totally new from what it was. But when you go back and look at all of the... Old Testament references, it'll be like the changing of a garment, and there'll be a cleansing of the earth in that day, and a renovation of the earth. Now, I know there are some that have suggested that that this has to do with what takes place during the millennium, but, but if you'll notice, it's very clear that this cannot be speaking of the of the millennium because it says there will be no more sea. Well, during the millennium there will be seas and there will be rivers, but in the new heaven and the new earth, the seas will be no more. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But notice new heaven, new earth, verse 2 and 3, there will be a new Jerusalem. Well, evidently, that speaks about the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember, we already talked about that uh, to, to some extent, how that the heavenly Jerusalem, the holy city, is going to descend out of heaven 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. And we're going to read about that in just a little bit. And as it comes down out of heaven and literally uh, touches the earth during that day, and so the ancient tabernacle and the ancient temple uh, won't be needed anymore because we won't need an earthly temple because God, God is His own temple. In other words, we're going to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And when we get down later in this chapter, you're going to see that, you know, in heaven, there's no need of a temple there because we are in Christ and and He is the holy temple, the holy of holies. So, these are the new things. Now, look in verse number 4 and 5. We see the former things. And uh, He says in verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, and neither sorrow, nor crying, 
Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Former things. Notice, no more sea. Presently, three-fourths of the earth is covered in water. Now, just think about all of the additional space there will be uh, available in eternity. Three-fourths of it is covered by water, but in that day there will be no more sea. But better than that, notice what he says next, there will be no more death. I'll tell you what, Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Thank God the day is coming. There will be no more death. There will be no more weeping over the, uh, over the loved ones that have gone on. There will be no more loneliness and no more sorrow. In that day there will be no more death. Notice, neither sorrow. And, of course, while death and sorrow go hand in hand, a lot of times, a lot of times, even when death is not involved, there are things that make us exceedingly sorrowful. Uh, this morning I spoke about the subject of depression. And, uh, and it can be overwhelming. It can literally paralyze a person's life. I mean, just absolutely lock you up to the point that you cannot even function. And sorrow is so overwhelming to some people, they find themselves in that condition. Well, thank God for the day when there will be no more sorrow. Notice, nor crying. The expression of our sorrow, no more crying. Thank God for that. I mean, God will dry every tear from our eyes. No more crying in that day. And notice, and no pain. No pain. I uh, sat down and started to write an article this week. In fact, I, I, I wrote out a good portion of it. And uh, as I was writing it, I, 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 I I thought about, you know, putting it, sending it out by way of an email. And I decided not to do it. Because I know that somebody would misunderstand what I was saying. You know, when we think about how tough it can be to live in this life today, uh, a lot of times if you even talk about it, some people think, Oh, he must really be depressed or he must really be discouraged. And I've had that happen so many times. You know, I would preach a message about a subject like that. And after the service, somebody uh, who meant well would come up, you know, and try to encourage me. And I had to explain, I'm not discouraged. I'm preaching about discouragement, but that doesn't mean I'm discouraged. And uh, so as I started to, as I started to write this article... And, and if I decide to later on and you get it, you'll know what I meant. It started something like this. The longer, the longer I live, the less I want to live. The longer I live, the less I want to live. A lot of people just don't get it. They don't understand that. Oh, you know, he's thinking about suicide or, you know, he's given up on life. He doesn't want to. No, no, no. You missed the point altogether. And by the way, if you go home and read Philippians 1 and verse number 23, 
where Paul is speaking about the fact, and he just said, you know, my favorite verse, of course, is verse number 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then as he goes on there in verse number 23, and he speaks about that that very fact that he says, for to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Now, I've never heard anybody criticize Paul for making that statement, but I suspect they would criticize me for saying that, you know, that the longer I live, the less I want to live. There's an old song that says, I'm homesick for heaven, I've got a longing to go. Now, a part of that, a part of that has to do with the things that we leave in this world. But that, listen, Paul went through those tough times. That's not the main motivation that Paul had. And it's not the primary motivation for the way that I feel. It's not that life is so bad I just want to get out of it. That has nothing to do with it to depart and be with Christ. That's the thing that makes all the difference in the world. But let's face it, even as we talk about that and think about that, please understand that just the knowledge that there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, I mean, is that in itself, is that not an incentive to want to literally be with the Lord? And, and thank God that we have the blessed hope, the assurance that God has given us that one of these days that we'll be in the very presence of Christ and there'll be no more pain. No more pain. I just, I, I don't like to hurt and I don't like to see people hurt. I especially don't like to see my loved ones hurt. And, uh, and and I know the pain that Bev goes through, and it just tears me apart, not being able to do anything about it. The good news is God's going to heal her and me and you. It's just a matter of time. We just got to be patient. It's just a matter of time, folks. That's all it is. It's going to happen. For all of God's children, there's going to be total, complete healing. No more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. Thank God that's what we've got to look forward to. Now notice, not only the new things and the former things, but now he begins to speak about the best things. Verse number 6 and 7, And he said unto me, It is done. Oh boy, it's so difficult. You have no idea how difficult it is for me to go from one verse to another and skip over things and, and to not just get hung up there on a particular phrase. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Those who have received the gift of salvation are described in the Bible as being overcomers. And notice here in verse number 6, it speaks about us as overcomers that we're going to inherit all things. Now, that happens because we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to receive everything. We're going to receive the best things. We're going to receive absolutely everything needful for, for eternal happiness in that day. That ought to thrill our heart. 
to, to think about heaven, not only, you know, because of, uh, of what we leave, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and those things, but of what we are going to. That's even more important. So he speaks about the best things and the former things and the new things. But look at verse number 8, because here, all of a sudden, our attention is turned to the worst things. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second Death. Now, understand, this list is not all-inclusive. There are other things that could be mentioned, other people that could be listed that are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, but it's just enough to be descriptive of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and again, don't misunderstand, he's not saying that everyone who ever committed any of these sins that they can't be saved. That's not the point. He's speaking about those who, because of their sinful nature, habitually practice these sins. And that is an evidence that they're not saved. You know, I've often said, don't you ever judge somebody because of what they do occasionally. Don't you judge them by what they do when they act out of character as a result of some problem in their life. You know, I mean, I've been just, I mean, so close to punching people in the nose since I've been saved. I've been pretty close to punching some church members in the nose during my lifetime. And, and, and had I done that, however, as wrong as I am, I don't go around punching people in the nose Everybody fails to some extent. What I'm trying to say is, you know, we look at somebody and we see them do something. It might be something that's listed here. And we say, oh my, well, they couldn't be saved. I'd be careful about uh, trying to make a judgment like that. I mean, if you were to look at Lot, you might have thought, well, he's sure not saved. If you were to look at David during a certain part of his life, you might have thought, well, he sure doesn't have a relationship with God. He doesn't know anything about God. Look how he's living. You see, we all fail. But this is beyond mere failure. These are the ones that this is their nature. This is the manner of life. And, and notice the list that he gives us here. He begins by speaking about the fearful. Now, at first glance, that really seems strange. Why would he mention the fearful? Because after all, we all get afraid sometimes of, of something. But he's talking about a particular class of people. He's talking about that class of people that reject the Lord Jesus Christ because they fear the ridicule of man. In other words, they love the praise of man more than they love the praise of God, but they're going to regret it in that day. And here's what you've got to remember. Back in those days, in those times when John lived, for a person to publicly profess Christ as their Savior meant being ostracized by society and literally, in many instances, disowned by your own family. I mean, there was a price to pay. Reading back through the old Baptist history books and reading about church history, the interesting thing is that back in those days and down through history, for someone to merely make a profession of faith, 
didn't mean all of that much. In other words, it might irritate people, but they didn't take any action until the person was baptized. And when the person was baptized, that was the public sign of the fact that they had indeed trusted Christ as their Savior. That was the evidence of it. By the way, it still is today. We accept that as evidence of their conversion by virtue of the fact that we accept them into the church body as a result of that. And so, as important as it is, you see, that in in those days for you to make a profession of faith and to get baptized, you were going to pay a dear price. And remember Jesus said and spoke about, you know, if we, not, if we fail to confess Him before man, neither will He confess us before the Father which is in heaven. There is such a thing as being so in love with the praise of man, so fearful of what others are going to think, that you literally reject Christ as your Savior. And He's speaking about the fearful. Then notice, He speaks about the unbelieving. Now remember this, the unbeliever might not be as bad as he could be. And it might be that he's never practiced any of the sins that are mentioned here. Hasn't murdered anyone. He's not a whoremonger. He's not into idolatry as we think of it. He's not a drunkard. He's not a thief. He's not any of those things. And so a lot of times people break their arm patting themselves on the back because, you know, they are, you know, they're not a Christian. They would admit that, but They would say, after all, I'm not near as bad as so-and-so, you know. I'm not as bad as I could be. No, but you're as bad off as you could be. You're going to go to the same devil's hell as all of these other people. You see, unbelief is the damning sin. That is the one thing that will keep you out of heaven above everything else. Unbelief, refusing to trust Christ as your Savior. Then he speaks about the abominable. Now, unlike some... Unbelievers, these degenerates are of the very worst type of people. Abominable, filthy, disgusting, sickening in the sight of God. And the Bible speaks often about the various things that are abominations unto God. And boy, when you see that word, you need to take it serious. When God says, this is an abomination, God means business. And the abominable shall have their part in the lake of fire. And then notice he mentions the, the murders. In other words, Cain's going to be there. Hitler's going to be there. Stalin's going to be there. You say, well, I'm not a murderer. Well, what about all of those that murder the little innocent unborn children? You see, all of the murderers shall have their part in the lake of fire. The whoremongers, and that particular word would be descriptive of anyone practicing illicit sex. And then he mentions the saucers. That would have to do with the fortune tellers, the medians, and so forth. And, and could refer, as I've talked about before, uh, to the dope dealers and the drug users. Because the, the particular word comes from the Greek word pharmakia. And so he could have a reference to that. Uh, but it most certainly has to do with fortune telling and things of that nature. And then the idolaters. Now, normally we think about that as being those that, you know, worship a god that is carved out of wood or carved out of stone. But let me tell you, you can be guilty of idolatry even though you never bow down to a god carved out of wood or stone. Your god might be fun. 
fun. That can be your God. It might be family. It might be friends. It might be fortune. It can be any number of things. It can be anything that you put ahead of God. And all idolaters shall have their part in the lake of fire. And then notice notice what he says. This would be surprising to a lot of people, but here it is. All liars. Well, if that doesn't tell us anything else, it tells us that lying is much more serious in the sight of God than what people think. And notice here, those mentioned in this list, he says, will suffer the second death which simply means eternal separation from God. And so those, you know, that were born once die twice. Those that are born twice die once. Are you with me? That's why you must be born again. Because if you're born again, you're going to, you know, die physically, but that'll be the end of it. But if you're lost, if you've never been born again, even after you die physically, there is another death, a spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. God is serious about this matter of us being truthful. And and most certainly, just because you ever told a lie, doesn't mean you're going to hell, but it means you're acting like you are. If people can't trust what you say, if you're being dishonest, You're acting just like those that are going to hell. And there ought to be a difference in us. You ought to be able to trust a Christian. His Word ought to be His bond. You ought to be able to, you know, take it to the bank and depend upon it. All liars shall have their part. Now, now comes the fifth category of things. And here he speaks of the beautiful things. And and I'm just going to read beginning in verse 9 through the chapter, and then make a few comments and we'll be through because there are so many things here we can't possibly deal with every, every little verse and phrase. Verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the, last, uh, the, the seven last plagues and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a great wall and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, and on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured in the city 
with the reed, to measure the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, and the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall there of 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass." And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedona, and the fourth emerald, the fifth was sarnyx, and the sixth sardis, and the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth a topaz, and the tenth a chrysophilus, and the eleventh a jaceth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, and neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all uh, by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. As I read that and I think about that, the best way I know to explain it is to say as little as possible about it. To just let it speak for itself, just like that. There are just a few things I want you to notice here about this new Jerusalem. It's 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. Twelve gates. Think about it. Twelve gates, and each gate was a pearl. There are twelve layers of foundation. And each one, each layer being a different precious stone. Inside the city... There's a street paved with transparent gold. Now, I've seen gold, but I've never seen gold that was transparent. Have you? I mean, that is that is purity of the highest sort. And God Himself, the Lamb, shall be the light of it. It's been estimated that about 40 billion people have lived since Adam. Now, I want you to think, let's suppose that, let's say, 10% of those, of, of those 40 billion people are saved. 10%. I think that would be a, maybe a high number, but whatever it is, just for the sake of trying to get a picture. And then let's suppose that two-thirds of this area here is used for parks, streets, and rivers. All of those things exist. We know that from the description of the New Jerusalem. If that was the case, there would be enough area that every person 
could have a six-sided cube with 200 acres on every side. And now remember, this is just the new Jerusalem. That's all in addition to the new earth. So what I'm trying to get you to see is God has made ample provision. You don't need to be satisfied with a a cabin in the corner of glory land. That song just kind of aggravates me, you know. You'd be satisfied with a cabin in the corner of glory land. Well, thank God we've got something a whole lot better than that. Amen. He's gone to prepare what? A mansion for us. And there's plenty of room for everyone. Whosoever will may come. Sitting at my desk this afternoon and as I was thinking about this and the, the wonders of heaven and the certainty of God's promises and to know that all of this, this is reality. I know it seems like science fiction stuff. I know it seems to be so far beyond what we can wrap our mind around that it, it just almost doesn't sound real. Kind of like the woman that said to the preacher when he preached about heaven, said, oh, that sounds too good to be true. And he said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. He said, it sounds so good, it must be true. It must be true. I mean, this is otherworldly stuff. This is God kind of stuff. This is what God promised. And we can rest assured that's the way it was going to be. But I got to thinking about, you know, the pain and the agony and the suffering that we go through. And one of the most heartbreaking things in this life is to is to see a child suffer or to see a child die, what we would say, you know, prematurely. They never even got to live their life. Maybe you've said that. You've probably thought about it. Some little kid you know that got killed and they never even got a chance to live their life. We think about the tragedy there in Connecticut and those 20-some kids uh, getting killed, murdered. And you know it helps us to put everything in its proper perspective. And, And certainly we ought to pray for those that suffered the loss of their loved ones. Amen? Because... Those four people are tormented to think that their little child has been torn out of their arms and they'll never see that child again and they're heartbroken. We need to pray for them. But let me tell you something. You do not need to pray for those little kids that have not reached the age of accountability. God has made provision for them. They are in heaven with Him. They wouldn't come back even if they had an opportunity to come back. You don't need to fret over those little children. Oh, but they never got to live out their life. What are you talking about? They have escaped the things that trouble you so much. And if they've not reached the age of accountability, then we can thank God that He's made provision for them. The ones that we better be concerned about are those that have become accountable to God. They know the difference between right and wrong. Those that have had the opportunity to be saved and rejected, those are the people, whether they're 8 or whether they're 80, those are the people that we need to be concerned about when we think not only about what they're going to suffer, but also what they're going to miss. What they're going to miss. 
Just a moment ago, I finished reading that chapter, and I heard amens, hallelujah, and, and there was an excitement in the air, and there should be. But there are dear loved ones that we know that's going to miss all of that. And that ought to trouble us deeply, and we need to pray for them and witness to them and be an example before them of what a believer ought to be. Going back to what he said in Second Peter chapter 3, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, and then Peter asked this question. He said, seeing that all of this is going to happen, he said, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Now, you think about that. Let that sink in. What manner of person ought ye to be? Seeing all of this is going to happen, what kind of a person should you be? Well, you better be saved. You better be saved if you're not. And if you are, we need to be serious about living our life for God while we yet have an opportunity. We're going to stand together tonight, and I don't know what God might be speaking to your heart about. There might be some heavy burden on your heart and you just want to come and pray and you won't be interrupted. Nobody's going to come to you and tap you on the shoulder or bother you. You can take that time to pray. It might be that God's speaking to you about something else. It might even be that there's someone here tonight that's never truly trusted Christ as their Savior. And you want to come and settle that tonight and receive Him as your Lord and your Savior that you can have the same hope that we have of all of the wondrous things God has provided as we sing, You Come.